Welcome to another episode of the Raja Cordova podcast brought to you by the California Capital Film Office. I'm your host, Charles Lego. Today, we are delighted and honored to speak with Roger Nilo. The very first bill uh, that I introduced uh, was as a result of uh, some news reports at the time. Uh, uh, people who live in Arden Park discovering that their, uh, their CCNRs, their neighborhood restrictions, if you will, right. uh, didn't allow uh, any, uh, anything other than white Caucasians to live there and right. own houses. Which now, is incredible, really. It was, but it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't operative anymore. It had been that had been made illegal oh, back okay. in the fifties, but so, their documents still said. So it's like an old law on the books. Exactly. Yeah. Newly elected member of the California State Senate, representing the sixth district, made up entirely in Sacramento County, and includes the north side of the city of Sacramento and its suburbs of Rancho Cordova, Citrus Heights, Rio Linda, Alberta, Arden Arcade, Antelope. Foothill Farms, North Highlands, and most of Fair Oaks. That's quite a district there. Senator Nilo, thank you so much for being here today, and welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast, and congratulations on being elected to serve the 6th District. Well, thank you very much, and uh, allow me to uh, uh, correct the uh, description of the district a little bit, okay. if I may. Sure. Uh, it doesn't include any of the city of Sacramento. It, it's uh, entirely in the suburban area of Sacramento County, oh, okay. and just about all of it, including Galt, uh, not uh, Elk Grove, but all of the other suburban oh, okay. cities, and it includes South Placer. Okay. So it goes up into Roseville, so Rockland, Lincoln. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's a million people. Every yeah. Senate district has yeah, to be yeah. a million people. They do? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's start off. Why did you decide to run for state Senate? Well, um, some people uh, suggested that maybe I had lost my mind. Uh, I was out right. of the legislature, out of elected office for about 12 years, <clears throat> and really wasn't contemplating going back into it. I didn't think that there'd be an opportunity. But uh, redistricting created an opportunity. Uh, about a year ago now, a little bit less than that, people were pointing out to me this new uh, Senate District 6 and uh, I took a look at it, and uh, as I described it a moment ago, it's a district that is very friendly to me. The Sacramento, the most of the population of the Sacramento County portion of it are communities that I represented before. Right. <clears throat> and I've always been uh, close with uh, South Placer communities and uh, their elected officials, and I thought, why not? It's winnable. Yeah. And How long was the campaign? Uh, well, I began the campaign late January, and then we had uh, the primary in early June, and then the general election in early November. So, 10 months. Yeah, and you ran against two people? Well, two people for the primary, right. uh, one Republican and one Democrat. Right. And, and it was and the, then it was just you and... Just me and, and uh, Paula Villasquez. Yeah. Um, what is the most important issue facing the 6th District, the district you, you represent today? Well, the issues that made me decide to run, uh, in addition to working on things that I've always worked on in the past, but uh, homelessness and the increase in crime had right. been troubling me greatly. Uh, homeless is a much bigger, homelessness is a much bigger issue in areas outside of the suburban area, but it has crept into the suburban area in the last 10 years or so whereas it was not before. And uh, homelessness continues to grow. 
and the state has thrown billions of dollars at it as it continues to grow. And I was not satisfied that uh, the right issues were being addressed. And we're actually going to, homelessness is actually a topic mm -hmm. that we discuss a lot here. Uh -huh. It's the guys here are passionate about it. Young people tend to be more passionate about homelessness, I think. Um, but we're going to talk about that. Okay. But um, so, And then crime. Crime. The increase in crime yeah. uh, created because of certain uh, crimes that have been uh, de-escalated, if you will. Uh, a higher threshold for grand theft. Uh, and then district attorneys, uh, particularly in San Francisco and Los Angeles, right. that decided that they wouldn't particularly prosecute right. uh, crimes like that. And, and other... believe it or not, we're going to talk about that as well. Okay. So, yeah. And in the same vein, what issues, what's the biggest issue California as a whole faces? Do you I think, think homelessness is the biggest issue for the state I agree. right now. Yeah. So before running for state Senate in 1999, you were elected to the County Board of Supervisors for Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And in 2004, you were elected to the California Assembly and re-elected twice. Yes. You served on several committees, including the Banking and Finance Committee, for which you were vice chair, the Transportation Committee, and the Joint Committee on Emergency Services and Homeland Security. So for, for listeners who may not know your accomplishments in the Assembly, why don't you tell us some of the highlights that you're most proud of? And I have read that there are several. So why don't you tell us? <laughs> well, the very first bill uh, that I introduced uh, was as a result of uh, some news reports at the time. Uh, people who live in Arden Park discovering that their, uh, their CCNRs, their neighborhood restrictions, if you will, right. uh, didn't allow uh, any anything other than white Caucasians to live there and right. own houses. Which is now, incredible, really. It was, but it yeah. wasn't it wasn't operative anymore. It had been that had been made illegal oh, back okay. in the fifties. But so, their documents still said so that So it's like an old law on the books. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, which can be used if they want to, right? Uh, well no, it couldn't be used. No. The, the the laws prohibited anything even oh, okay. remotely uh, resembling that. But but people were uh, troubled by the documents uh, stating that. And uh, so I authored some legislation uh, working with uh, local governments, which is where the records are, uh, so that uh, people could uh, uh, obtain documents that uh, didn't have the offensive language in it, though the permanent record wasn't changed because I thought it was important that people know forever that at one time we did that and you know you learn by your mistakes right. and you only learn by your mistakes if you right. if you recognize right, them right. and they're kept before you that was uh, uh, a bill that was uh, interesting uh, to uh, uh, to author and to and to run uh, you would think that that would be like apple pie and white picket fences nobody would be opposed to it but there were certain issues that some homeowners associations were concerned about. Local governments were, didn't want to have mandates uh, imposed on them. So we had to navigate some speed bumps, if you will, and, and, and we did, and it was an interesting process. But I'm curious, how does a homeowners association say, no, we do not want language removed? They don't. No, the homeowners association were concerned that there could be an unintended consequence oh, in see. the bill to... Uh, make it difficult for them to operate in areas other than that. So you were successful in having that removed? Uh, well, the, the, as I said, the record was uh, yeah. was was intact, 
but we devised a way for uh, homeowners to have a document uh, that was modified not I to see. have that language in it. Okay. So what was another? I mean, I read you had some accomplishments. Give us another we one. We did. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, Probably the most significant uh, event in my term, uh, which didn't help my reelection after that, was the, the horrible budget of 2008 and 2009. And uh, we had a 40-some billion dollar deficit with a roughly $100 billion general fund. It was, it was very significant as a proportion of the total. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, uh, the uh, uh, Republican leader in the Assembly and the Senate, and, and I was vice chair of the Budget Committee at the time, um, we negotiated. That was back when the budget required a two-thirds majority to pass, so they needed Republican uh, votes. That's not the case anymore, but right. it was then. And so uh, uh, we negotiated some, I think, very significant policy gains uh, in return for uh, some temporary tax increases, which I felt were necessary because the deficit was just too big. And the most, um, the couple that were important, one had to do with public-private partnerships that uh, um, we uh, uh, were able to get some significant legislation about that in the budget. Some other things with regard to uh, spending that uh, uh, could be uh, reduced. But the most significant thing was the one that didn't succeed, uh, frankly. It was a constitutional amendment that uh, would have uh, limited the ability of spending to increase year to year and force a reserve uh, to be set up. And uh, uh, that was on the ballot as a constitutional amendment, but it was tied to two more years of the temporary uh, taxes. And it was defeated primarily because of that provision. But um, it now there was a, uh, a reserve that was established on a bipartisan basis a few, few years ago, but that is nowhere near as strong as that bill that we had on the ballot back okay. in, in 2010. And uh, it was very frustrating because after that spending continued to increase, the temporary taxes went away. And in order to keep spending up, Governor Brown proposed permanent tax increases. The voters passed it. So uh, we ended up with permanent tax increases and no spending limit. Wow. And okay. that, that was very frustrating. So did you enjoy your time at the assembly? You were there how many years? Six years. Six years. I did. did yeah? Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. So I've got a lot more questions for you regarding the plans as a state senator in the 6th District. But on this show, we always get to know our guests. Okay. Um, we like to know what they're all about. So let's get to know State Senator Roger Nilo. So why don't you tell us about your early years? Where were you born? Who were your parents? Et cetera. Well, I was born in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, uh, we moved to my grandfather actually was an automobile dealer. He was a Packer dealer in San Francisco beginning in 1922. So uh, last year, uh, excuse me, 1921, so year before last, we celebrated our 100th year in the car business. It's not a continuous corporate existence. Wow but as a family, yeah, and yeah. Uh, we were proud of the staying One power. of the earliest cars then. Yes, I mean. and uh, uh, my dad went to work for his dad after the war, but of course Packard 
uh, eventually went the way of the Hupmobile in the right. early 50s. And, and my dad worked for a short time. His father passed away uh, fairly young in about 1952 or so. My dad went to work for a, uh, uh, a dealership uh, on Van Ness Avenue in, in San Francisco and where he met uh, Wes Lasher. And uh, my dad and Wes Lasher got the Volkswagen franchise in Sacramento in 1955. So that's when we came to Sacramento. So, uh, uh, okay. And, and uh, my dad and Wes split up because my father bought the second Volkswagen dealership in Sacramento, which was already here before they got here. And uh, so they split, remained uh, best of friends for uh, uh, a, uh, a, till Wes passed away. My dad passed away just last year. Um, but, uh, uh, so he had Nilo Volkswagen and also Nilo Porsche, and that Porsche franchise, uh, we believe, is the oldest continuously operating Porsche franchise wow. in the country, and uh, we are just now building a second Porsche store, and uh, so we will, when that opens up, we will be at the same time the oldest and the newest. The newest. <laughs> so, um, and your mother, was. She was just a homemaker, stayed uh, at home. She was. Take care but, of everybody. Uh, um, she came, uh, interesting in terms of our history in this country, my uh, dad's father was born in Italy and emigrated here. My mother's family goes back to 1640. A man named John Fay came over shortly after the pilgrims did. And uh, so we go back uh, a short distance and, uh, and a long distance. Wow. And my mother's family, her father, and grandfa her father and grandfather owned a company called the River Lines, which was a river freight business on the Sacramento River. They actually owned the Delta King and Queen for a period of time uh, and owned and operated it. Wow. Uh, and uh, so uh, we have some significant uh, wow. family history on my mother's side yeah, also. Okay. And when did you go to high school? I went to high school at Encina High School. Yeah. Uh, graduated in 1966. And how was that? Were you a good student? Uh, well, I was I was a good enough student to get into UC Berkeley, yeah, yeah. which is much harder now than it was right. then. Right. Uh, but uh, but I did. And so I, that brings us to your college years. So yes. you went to UC Berkeley mm -hmm. and then to UCLA. Yes. Yeah. So both of them, very good schools. Yes. So, so that answers the question. You were a good student. <laughs> yeah. I was a decent student. So... Um, did you like college? Was that a good experience for you? I did. Yeah. Um, I graduated in four years, which yeah. was a good thing. Yeah. And uh, I had a lot of fun uh, in college. And and uh, my wife, uh, Mary, and I got married in uh, June of the year that I graduated from, from Cal. And so she and I uh, moved to uh, Los Angeles, to the L.A. area, to uh, go to UCLA, which wow. I completed my master's in a year. But that was a lot of fun, too, that yeah. one year. We lived half the time in Santa Monica, which was really nice, yeah. near the beach. Right. Yeah, so. And then what was your career choice at college? What did you want to do? Or did you know? Or uh, did you have a, a goal? <laughs> well, my uh, uh, undergraduate degree was in accounting and information systems. That's right. uh, accounting and uh, computer-based right. uh, uh, information right. systems. <clears throat> and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into public accounting, so I went to uh, graduate school to sort of buy some time. 
And my master's degree is in the exact same thing as my bachelor's degree, one of the reasons that I could complete it in a year. And I went into public accounting. I you worked did. for You're a uh, CPA. I, I am a CPA, yeah. although I haven't practiced for right. many years. Right. Uh, but um, I did some typical accounting work like auditing and the like, but most of my uh, work with Arthur Anderson was in the consulting end. And uh, Oh, so you went to work for Arthur Anderson? Arthur Anderson. You did? Right out and, of school? Uh, right out of graduate wow, school. okay. And uh, I, uh, most of my work with Arthur Anderson was uh, designing, programming, and implementing uh, uh, computer-based uh, accounting systems and even some production control uh, type systems. And that would be for large companies. Correct. Right? Yeah. Well, actually, I, I, I uh, had a couple of jobs where I was working for one in particular, a, uh, um, a agricultural firm down in uh, Delano. Uh, and so some very large firms and some small, medium-sized firms. Uh, so it was a bit of a mix. So you were a CPA for 25 years? Well, I was in public accounting for about three years. Yeah. And that's when I joined the family car business. Right. And so that I did for about 25 right. years. Right. So let's talk about that. So how do you make the switch? Did you did, – it was a family business, obviously. Yes. So what was the first job you did? Uh, well, my dad um, in early 1974, I guess it was – he had grown from one location to two, and uh, he figured he needed a controller. And he said, I'm going to hire a controller. I'd like it to be you, but if it's not, I'm going to hire a controller. Okay. And so I decided so since— it's like an ultimatum. Yeah, well, no, 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 no. He absolutely did not mean no, it like no, that. No, okay. No, it, it, he, uh, he was not that kind of guy. No, no, okay. Uh, but he, he would like that person to be me. To you, yeah. And, but, but he knew he needed the position. Right. So just letting me know. Yeah. And, uh, so you took it. So I, I took that. And so initially, uh, I did fill the role of a controller, uh, but not long after I started— um, I uh, started running the uh, Volkswagen dealership, which is where my office was. So I was a general manager and a controller uh, at the same time. So how does one get a car dealership? That's always sort of fascinating. So I want to get into the car business tomorrow, and I want a dealership because I think that's a cool job. How do you, how do, you do that? You buy it from an existing Oh, that's the only way. Not the only way. You can be appointed by uh, the manufacturer. As an example, uh, our second BMW store in Elk Grove and the Porsche store that we're uh, about to uh, open up, uh, both, of those, both of those appointments were uh, from the factories. Uh, the original Volkswagen store was. Uh, others we've we've purchased. Okay. Uh, the Volvo store we we purchased from uh, my friend Pat Turner a few right. years ago. So you either um, are appointed a dealer for a new point by the manufacturer, which doesn't happen a lot, no. or you buy an existing point. And then so once they give you a certain number of cars and you sell them. Correct. Yeah. And then hopefully you get more. Yeah. <laughs> But they only give them to you as you sell them, or could you say, I want 20 Jettas? Well, you have a, a more or less an allocation. Uh, any, any particular uh, dealership point is uh, assessed at a particular planning volume, uh, depending upon the population right. uh, and the area you're responsible for. And, and the supply of vehicles you get is fundamentally based on that, but uh, sometimes you can increase your supply by selling cars faster. 
And then the car business, I would imagine, has highs and lows, right? Because oh, absolutely. Yeah. We have seen tremendous fluctuations yeah. in the time we've been in the business. And what causes that? The economy? Yeah. 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 The, the, well, I remember in uh, about 1980, you'll remember uh, we had uh, the transition from Carter to Reagan, and uh, Paul Volcker became the, uh, the head of the Fed, right. and he was fighting inflation, and interest rates went up significantly. Right. Right. Well, interest rates uh, went from uh, like under 10% to over 20%. Right. And that affected car loans dramatically right. and the, the economy as a, as a whole. Right. And uh, in the spring of that year, uh, I think it was 1980 or whatever year it was, business uh, collapsed. And so we've seen things like that. There are tremendous ups and downs in the car business. And when you, were, when you ran a, sh uh, a dealership, did you have aspirations for politics or did that come... That came on fairly quickly, yeah. uh, actually. I was, uh, I was involved in political issues from an industry perspective. Right. I participated in our trade groups right. and uh, would advocate for, uh, well, trade issues because most of our franchises are, are foreign and other policies that uh, would, would benefit the retail automobile uh, uh, business. And so I kind of got into that arena, if you will. And in about 1990, I joined the board of the Sacramento Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce, eventually became its, the chair of the board, and became much more involved in local issues uh, through that. So, right. so I was, I guess you might say I was an activist. Yeah. And my good friend Dave Cox was on the board of supervisors, and he ran for the assembly in 1998. Ah. And he and I talked about what would make sense for who, who should replace him right. on the board of supervisors. And, uh, and at that, it was at that time, and that was uh, oh, second quarter or so of 1998, I decided to run for the board of supervisors. It was a very sudden decision. Right. Uh, uh, six months before that, I wasn't even thinking about it. Uh, and so I took the plunge and I won the and election. You won. Okay. So was it when you, like, what do you do? You become, so you, you've, one minute you're selling cars and the next minute you're on the board of supervisors. How do you trans do that? Well, like, by how that, do you learn how to be a supervisor? The, well, that's a steep learning curve and I'll come yeah. back to that in a moment. But uh, uh, because of community activities that I was involved in, I was running two of our dealerships at the time, our Volkswagen store and our BMW store, right. and they were two separate locations. And I had uh, general managers in each dealership that were reporting to me. And so when I walked out the back door, they just began reporting to my brother Rick, who ever since has been our CEO, our sole CEO. And he's done a... Your brother is? Yeah, my brother. Today? Older, yeah, still yeah? is okay. today. And uh, he's done a tremendous job. Yeah. And he's navigated significant growth for our company. Uh, but... Um, I walked out the back door and the GMs just started reporting to, to Rick. And right. so then I became a, a county supervisor. And uh, that was a very steep learning curve. Yeah, I, would I would say somewhere between in the first four months, I was bewildered. All of it was a, it was a demanding job and uh, lots of reading, lots of public meetings. Right. And the issues that a county is involved in are huge yeah 
uh, social services, right. land use. Right. Uh, and Sacramento uh, County is a big county. Exactly. Yeah. Public safety. Uh, Police. And, yes, the, the uh, sheriff's department. Right. Uh, all of those budgets are the board's right. responsibility. Right. So learning things that I'd never been involved with before, particularly social services, juvenile justice, uh, land use issues, uh, it was a very, very steep learning curve. But coming from a CPA background and then a business background, I would imagine the the number the numbers part of it came fairly easily. Well, um, government accounting is what you call fund accounting. Private sector accounting is is uh, a little bit different. So learning the systems uh, was a little bit of a challenge. But I did gravitate toward budget issues because right. I'm kind of a numbers guy, right, right. which is how I ended up as vice chair of the budget in the assembly. And I'm vice chair of the budget in the Senate also. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I gravitate toward uh, uh, the numbers stuff. And, and I found I was the only business person on a five-member board. And not that it's a better perspective, but it's a different perspective that, that brings uh, uh, a perspective to the deliberative process that's different than an attorney or a, a community activist or anything right. like that. I miss what you said. Were you a vice chair of what in the Senate? I'm the sorry. budget. The budget. Committee. Oh, you are? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's... In fact, we have our first budget hearing this week. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Are you still involved in the car business? Well, indirectly. Non-operational, right. yes. Just because it's a family affair, exactly. Right? And yeah. I'm I'm one of three owners. Yeah. I'm the corporate secretary. Okay. So, so your brother's the CEO. Uh huh. You're the secretary. Correct. And who's the third? My younger brother David. He's oh, the vice president. So the three brothers. There's three brothers. And how many dealerships does Nilo have now? Uh, well, eleven with the uh, Porsche store, the new and Porsche all store. all over in the Sacramento region. Correct. Uh, uh, Placer County and Sacramento County. Yeah. Okay. Well, now let's talk about being a senator. Let's okay. talk about issues. Arguably the most pressing issue in the state, second only to California water issue, is homelessness, which we've touched on. Homelessness in the unhoused is a topic we talk about a lot on this podcast. Overall, California has nearly 129,000 homeless individuals who are not in families with children, while the homeless population in families with children is 22,500. And an estimated 70% of homeless are either seriously mentally ill or addicted to substances. So three questions for you. What are your views as far as homeless issues here in the Sacramento region? Second, what specific actions do you think state legislators can take to help unhoused residents and prevent, prevent homelessness? And when you look at it, it seems like an impossible task, especially in Los Angeles, where I live. And lastly, what are your views on the recent Measure O that passed, and did you support it? Oh, the local yeah. uh, measure. Yes, I did support that. Yeah. Uh, short answer to that question. But um, you, you mentioned 70% uh, are suffering from mental illness yeah. and, and substance abuse. That number is debated, but I believe that's probably an accurate number. Yeah. And uh, as I said, one of the reasons I decided to run was the, our inability to address homelessness. And prior to that, it just appeared to me that people were not treating the homeless issue, recognizing that 70%. There's a, uh, local governments have to address the issue, of course. 
count primarily counties, but cities because they're affected. They're affected by it. Uh, and but there are policies, federal and state policies, that make it very difficult for them to do their job. Uh, there's a federal policy called Housing First, and all federal funding is guided by Housing First, and that is get people under a roof. Period. Now, if that's all you do, yeah. <laughs> you'll just have a bunch of mentally ill right. uh, drug addicts uh, under roofs, yeah. and they would be wards of the state. Right. Uh, and so there has to be a way to compel people to treatment. Right. And that's difficult because of a couple of state policies. One is, with regard to substance abuse, we used to have a very effective program called Drug Court. Right. Uh, a person would be arrested for a drug offense, right. and jail is the worst place for them Absolutely. to go. Yeah. And so a judge would offer uh, the person uh, diversion right. to drug treatment. And if they accepted Mandatory. it— Mandatory. No, no. They, they, could, they could choose not to accept it, but, but they'd, they'd go to they'd jail. Go to jail. Well, so, so, yeah. so they typically well, and almost always it. Would, would accept right. it. And successfully completed, um, not only do they— avoid jail, but the, that particular crime is expunged. Exactly. It's off their record. Yeah. Now, um, drug crimes were, uh, the, the uh, penalty for drug crimes was significantly reduced in uh, initiatives that, unfortunately, the people of the state passed, Proposition 47. And so that threat of, of, uh, of, of jail doesn't exist anymore. And so it's very difficult to compel people to treatment, especially homeless people, because if they wanted treatment, they wouldn't be homeless. They wouldn't right. be on the streets. And so uh, drug court just doesn't work anymore. Right. Now, on the homeless issue, there's a, a law that was passed quite a few years ago when Reagan was governor called the Lanham and Petrus Short Act. And that severely restricts the ability to uh, compel mentally ill people to treatment. There were terrible abuses prior to that, and it's true. Um, and a good example of that would be Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, it was based on a book by Ken Kesey, and it very well illustrated the abuses that were happening in mental hospitals. Right. So uh, because of that, this bill was passed. It basically did away with, with state mental hospitals but it didn't provide any funding to local governments to treat people that are mentally ill. And it also has a provision that you cannot hold a person for more than 72 hours just for a mental illness issue, and you have to let them go. And there has to be a, a, a method to compel people to mental treatment uh, as well as compelling people to substance abuse treatment. And these policies come from the state level. Right. And so those are the things that, that need to be done. And uh, the thing that I find troubling is uh, when, when I would post things on Facebook or Twitter, and this was before I was even thinking about running, and I'd try to address the issue of homelessness and in the context of what we're talking about. And there are a lot of people that completely deny that that's a significant part of the problem. Uh, many people uh, accused me of, of accusing homeless 
uh, people of being the cause for homeless people, uh, blaming it on them, which, of course, I was not doing. And then there are other people who say, well, they're mentally ill and abusing substances because they're homeless, not the other way around. And it all was kind of upside down. Uh, right. But uh, that's, those are the things that we need but to address. But what, what can be done? Um, I asked the police chief of Rancho Cordova this question. What, what can, and he said, well, if I knew that answer, I mean, but there has to be an answer, right? I drive through Skid Row sometimes in L.A., and I mean, it's unbelievable, Skid Row. I mean, literally thousands of people on. How would you even begin to, to fix that problem? I, I just, I can't imagine how you would begin to fix it. It's so big that uh, that's why it appears to be hopeless. There's just so many people. But if we can find a way... For, uh, housing is part of it. There's right. no We're doubt We're going to talk that. about housing. Uh, and uh, um, uh, we do need to work on getting people uh, under roofs, but we have to find ways to compel people to, um, uh, to mental treatment and to substance abuse uh, tre treatment. And unfortunately, that costs money. Yeah. And all but the billions— But will it save the money of the jail, right? Will it, does it equal out if you— if you use the money for the treatment, they're not going to jail. Does it not equal out? Well, the people that are, are homeless are not necessarily going to jail. They're out no, on the no, streets. No, no, that's true, yeah. And yeah. so uh, that's that's not a no. – uh, I don't think that's a, a one-for-one no. right. uh, savings. And so uh, the – but we have thrown so many billions of dollars at it, and I don't even know where that money has gone. Uh, but – uh, we desperately need people who can uh, treat folks right. uh, with mental issues and uh, with substance abuse issues, right. and that costs money. Uh, there have to be consequences to drug offenses so that the drug court can be effective again. Right. Uh, and there has to be a reform of this Lanterman Petra Short Act uh, so that we can uh, compel people yeah. to, to treatment. Right. But, and it will take a long time and a lot of money. And I know you've only been at the Senate a little while, so maybe you don't know, but is there support with other senators? Yes. Uh, are, are people talking about it? Yes, they are. Is it, is it bipartisan, are. everybody? And yes, yeah. and, and it's much more an acknowledgement of uh, the fundamental uh, causes which we've talked about. Uh, and there are other senators and assembly members uh, who are looking at it the yeah. same way. And the governor? Uh, well, he uh, pro, um, proposed his uh, care court, right. which is a uh, system similar to the drug court for treating uh, mentally ill people. And that's a start. Yeah. yeah. That's a start. So you think we, we're going we're, we're gonna to start opening the door to, to help him? I sure hope so. In your district, is, I mean, is there um, – where would there be a house um, unhoused problem? Which cities? Um, well, obviously Sacramento. We yeah, know. Rancho Cordova doesn't seem to have that big of a problem. As I said, the sixth Senate district itself, generally speaking, does not have a huge homeless problem like the city of Sacramento right. does. But there are areas of where course. it exists. Yeah, there. Matter of fact, the uh, Hazel Avenue just underwent a. Widening the the last and third portion of it to Madison Avenue, and as they were done with it, all of a sudden a homeless camp popped up on the sidewalk, uh, on the uh, east side of the road, uh, very close to uh, 
Madison Avenue, right. just all of a sudden there are some in the parkway. Uh, and so that it, it does pop up in the suburban area, right. whereas 20 years ago it did not. How do you think the police should deal with homeless people? Well, they have to enforce whatever laws right. exist with regard to... But do to they move them on? Do they just let them do their thing as long as they're not sort of, you know... Well, now that those uh, those measures have been right. passed in the city and county of Sacramento, right. they have the ability to move them from certain sensitive areas right. to other areas. They're still uh, very often still out in the open in tents, uh, and that's where shelters come in, and uh, we need that. There's a lot of people that are homeless that refuse to go to the shelters. Because they say the shelters are more dangerous than the streets. Uh, correct. And yeah. so that issue needs to be addressed. Right. And, uh, again— It's a huge problem. Every time you open a door, it just it's another huge problem. But if, if we can uh, cure those people who are dreadfully mentally ill and cure people who are addicted to substances— we can get them to self-sufficiency. Well, when I read the issues on your website and you talk very eloquently about homeless and that, you know, that it's your passion, the fact that you don't have it in your district as much as somewhere else is, I think is a testament and it's a great hope that if there are other senators like you that, that I think really there are. take it on, mm -hmm. we might get there or yes. at least make a dent. It's also well documented that California has a housing shortage and state legislators struggle to make a dent in the issue. Rents are becoming very unaffordable and many people find themselves unable to afford rents and in turn very quickly could end up on the streets. When you ran, you pledged to make um, the shortage of housing an issue. Now as a state senator, what policies can you pursue to make a dent in those issues and help people live in homes or apartments that they can afford in the areas where they work and their children go to school. What can be done to increase affordable housing? Government regulations make it very difficult right. to build housing. Um, there are certainly issues at the local level, uh, uh, fees that are charged. The, the amount of, of uh, public fees that are charged for a house is extremely high, maybe 20% of the cost. Right. I don't know the number, but it's some, probably something on that, right. on that order. Um, and the approval process many times can be uh, extremely burdensome. I mentioned now a, a Porsche dealership is not a house, but still it has to go through an approval process. And uh, we were working on the approval process for this project for probably two years before we were effectively able wow. to effectively break ground. It was a very difficult uh, process. That's part of it. We also have environmental regulations at the state level and regulatory reform is a significant issue right. for me and that, that involves a lot of areas but one of them is the California uh, Environmental Quality CEQA. Act yeah. uh, uh, abbreviated at CEQA and um, that makes it difficult uh, to build housing also and it makes it easy for people that don't want to see a development protest it uh, for made up environmental right. reasons. So I've read that there's massive um, number of lawsuits against CEQA and they call it green mailing, a reference to blackmail, that once a developer hands over the proper amount of, quote, extortion, the project can then be built. Is yeah. that 
That. That's an, maybe an oversimplification, but right. it's a pretty accurate uh, simplification. And it's not just in housing issues, but other projects too, infrastructure projects. And it's not, su uh, the suits are not against CEQA. Right. The suits are using CEQA as a blunt instrument. Uh, as an example, uh, again, this isn't housing, but it's a good example of, of the weaponization. Uh, the Sutter, there's a large Sutter Hospital in downtown Sacramento along the freeway, yeah. right? You, yeah. You're probably yeah. familiar. It took years to build that building, probably two to four years longer than it should have because the nurses' union, Sutter uh, was either non-union or not sufficiently union, and the, the nurses' union were, were filing CEQA lawsuits against the hospital for made-up environmental lawsuits. Their purpose was not the environment, though. Yeah. Their purpose was collective bargaining. Right. And that's an example of how uh, a, a, an entity uh, interested in something in particular will utilize an environmental effect uh, and then sue on the basis of CEQA. It happens all the time. So affordable housing is obviously a big issue to help in the homeless to combat it or to at least stop people getting there. Uh, yes, it can, and I'm and 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 there's no doubt that uh, the other thirty percent, other than the seventy that you mentioned, uh, probably represents people who have fallen on hard times right. and can't afford uh, the rent. Right, and uh, so housing costs very definitely are an issue there. Housing cost is not an issue on the 70%, though. No. Uh, but uh, uh, so more affordable housing could work tremendously. Uh, regulatory and government restriction reforms can help tremendously with that. And these are issues that are important to you. Yes. Yeah. So I took a look at your Senate website in preparation for this and the issues that are all important to you. So let's touch on a couple. Okay. And we could be here all day, but... <laughs> Taxes. So being in business, people say, oh, California is the worst place to have a business. And, you know, sort of over my head a little bit. But I now that I've been here uh, three, four years, I could definitely see it. In May of last year, Newsom administration released a surplus. Now, I've researched this and I think it's all correct, but you'll tell me. A surplus projection of $97.5 billion, which means that the state has overcollected roughly $2,100 a person or $6,100 for a family of four. Is that correct? Well, I'll trust that you worked out the yeah. math. Californians complain about the high level of taxes, and you've stated that you'd opposed efforts to raise property taxes, gas taxes, income tax, sales tax, etc. So what can you as a California legislator do towards the issue of lowering taxes? Well, How I do can, you do that? I can try mightily, but I don't get a lot of support from the other side of the aisle right. on that, and the other side of the aisle is the majority. Right. But if I were king, um, we have a system of taxation that, uh, that uh, uh, makes it very difficult to uh, manage a budget. It, it, our system of taxation causes huge fluctuations in revenue flow. The largest uh, source of taxes is the personal income tax, and 1% of the people in the state pay about half of the personal income tax. And their incomes um, fluctuate tremendously, particularly in the area of, of capital gains. They personally are not suffering. They're, 
their income will vary from a lot to a huge amount, uh, but it has a tremendous effect on the fluctuation of revenues to the state. And so uh, uh, fluctuations in revenue uh, because of that. We need a flatter uh, income tax rate. I think it, on the sales tax side, I think it would make sense to uh, include some services in the tax as well as goods, but on a revenue neutral uh, basis. Uh, property taxes uh, is, is the, uh, uh, all of the other taxes uh, are based upon transactions that are cash-based. So there's cash to pay the tax. Right. Property tax is the one that is not a, right. uh, uh, a cash basis right. transaction, and so there's not necessarily the cash to pay the tax, right. which is why the tax revolt happened in the 70s. Right. Um, and uh, so property tax is just fine the way it is. I would not change that. The complaints that I had, and I have some friends who had businesses here, and they, they left. They went to Idaho, Vegas, everywhere. They took their businesses and they left because they would say, oh, the business taxes are so high, regulation is so complicated. And I know that you have views on that mm -hmm. and you would like to fix that. Having been the uh, CEO of the Sacramento Chamber of Commerce, I mean, you must have heard this from a lot of business people that were members, I would imagine. So how do we fix that? Well, I didn't have to be the CEO of the Metro Chamber, no. uh, and that was I was on the volunteer. Uh, excuse me, I was on the uh, the employee side of the organization at that time. Uh, so I've been both the volunteer lead and the staff lead of that organization. But uh, um, my own experience uh, right. uh, guides me there. Right. One of the reasons that I entered politics in the first place was because of mandates that government right. places on businesses, and. Um, I suspect if you really were to quiz uh, those people that left the state, uh, at least businesses as opposed to individuals, um, the reason would be regulation yeah. much more than taxes. It was regulation, yeah. yeah. And, and taxes are high, uh, but unless you're a partnership or a sub-S corporation, uh, if you're a, a regular corporation, uh, the, the, the uh, business income tax is about 9%. Now, that's high, uh, but the regulatory burden here is far more oppressive than the level of taxation. And uh, that's why businesses end up uh, leaving. We have a very burdensome regulatory regime in California. And who's responsible for that? The legislature. Yeah. Yeah. But the... Um the Democrats more than the Republicans? Oh, or? of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, we have, uh, you've, you've heard of the drive-by lawsuits, right? Yeah. Because of uh, uh, the uh, ADA violations, the disability uh, uh, provision violations. And there is in that uh, legislation what's called a private right of action. And a private right of action means that a private attorney can bring a suit against a business for an alleged violation of a state regulation and threaten to sue without having to prove that anybody's been damaged by it. And the state isn't even involved. The state's not pursuing right. the, the uh, enforcement of the regulation. It's an independent attorney, and uh, that's why they've called them drive-by lawsuits, and they truly are drive-by yeah. lawsuits. And, and there are regulations like that that are uh, that make it uh, make it uh, the uh, existence for a business very troublesome. Right.
gas gasoline prices have come down in recent weeks, but I see they're creeping. They seem to creep back up and then they go down, but they're still higher than they were, which is a burden. You know, I it happens, it affects me, it affects everybody. You know, you fill up your car and one minute it's $150 <laughs> and it used to be $80. So it's a, that's a burden for families and it causes a huge dent in the monthly budget. And then a business owner that might have operate three or four vehicles, um, what can be done and should be done at the state level? Do you support the suspending of the gas tax to well, ease that burden? Well, um, I, I did, uh, but now that gas prices have come back down, uh, we also coincidentally have a significant budget problem. And uh, part of that proposal was to suspend the gas price but make up that shortfall in revenue by pulling from the general fund. That's going to be much more difficult to do now with a $25 billion deficit, and it'll probably be greater by the time we get around to the uh, final May budget revision after the governor's introduction last week. Um, and, and gas prices have come down um, uh, quite a bit. Yeah. The, the reason that our gas prices are – and first of all, it's a commodity, so it is going to fluctuate. Right. Um, but gas prices are higher in California because of costs that we have in California that don't exist in other states. And uh, uh, that adds about a buck fifty or so to the price of gasoline here. So just hope for the best that um, they keep coming down. Well, we try to cure uh, the global climate change uh, uh, phenomena uh, by policies just here in the state of California. Right. And, uh, and everything that we do uh, is not going to change global no. carbon emissions no. in any measurable right. sense. And uh, the, uh, the, the argument is, well, California leads and the rest of the country will do it. And I'm sorry to say That's not that, true, the, no. that the, the country could adopt all of those things, too, and it would not have an effect on uh, global climate change. To the extent that man-made uh, activities uh, affect uh, climate change, and I don't doubt that they do. I just don't know to what extent they do. But that particular problem is far more acute in the developing world than it is in the developed world. And you're not going to change it there. Those people are generally poor, and uh, uh, green policies will be more expensive to them, and they're more interested in their poverty than they are in global warming. Right. Let's move on to education, which I think is important to you. In 2021, U.S. News & World Report ranked educational ranking by state. California comes in at number 20. Um, what would you do to improve these rankings and bring California back to compete with the likes of New Jersey, number one, Florida, number two, and Massachusetts, number three? Who are the top three states? Um, now, top three by achievement? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, I'm not sure that California is 20th out no. of 50, but be that as it may, there are different ways of measuring things. However, uh, they're just... Broadly speaking, competition, robust school choice can force public schools to improve. And uh, the legislature does pretty much everything it can to limit school choice. In fact, there was legislation 
passed, I think, last year that, that limits the growth of charter schools. Uh, and competition will help any system work better. Public education does not want competition. Uh, that's what school choice uh, provides. And I think that that could include in, increase quality quite a bit. And I think accountability of certain of, of school districts. Uh, you take a look at uh, the uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, City School District and the level of lack of achievement, particularly in disadvantaged neighborhoods, right. is terrible. Right. I read that you you would like to reward teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Much oh, like a, sure. The bonus system. In, mm -hmm. So if they're, if they're good, they get rewarded more. And, and uh, that means you have to somehow measure them. Right. And uh, I'm told by people in public education it's not fair to measure them. No. Okay. And you're a supporter, a big supporter of charter schools. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What about higher education? One of the problems you hear a lot, and I, ha you know, obviously I'm from Europe, so I don't have this problem, but people leave college and now they have huge debts for years. I mean, I'm, I'm horrified by what some people tell me, 200,000. And um, I think I read somewhere that Ronald Reagan once called higher education a privilege and not a right. <laughs> what, can, what can be done to, like, to encourage, like, I know some young people who say, well, I'm not going to go to college because I can't afford it and I don't want to be in debt. So that elim they eliminate themselves. Is there anything that can be done to, to encourage people to go like you did to Berkeley, UCLA? To it was far less expensive uh, yeah. back then. The equivalent of tuition, if you will, which they called student fees, uh, when I went to Cal, was about a hundred bucks a quarter, <laughs> and it's even accounting for inflation. It's wow. more than that now, um, but uh, but still, the state university is reasonably yeah. affordable yeah. Uh, comparatively. And community colleges, community colleges are are, yeah. are are very yeah. inexpensive. It's, yeah. I think it costs more for books than it does yeah. for the actual yeah. uh, classes. Uh, two years in a community college to feed you into a four-year university is a great way to right. go. You know, I graduated with uh, friends who went first to community college for two years and then their last two years at, at Cal. Uh, and, you know, their diploma looked exactly like yeah, mine. Yeah. You couldn't right. tell the difference. And, and arguably in, in lower division, you might get a better education at a community college than a huge school like, right. like Cal. Um, so that's a, uh, an option. The the issue is affordability, and the issue is the cost of higher education, and the cost of higher education has skyrocketed in the last couple of few decades. That's, that is one issue. Uh, but there are other avenues uh, than uh, a four-year college degree that can lead to high-paying jobs also through community colleges and, and, and trade schools. So Art could community college be free? Could it ever be made free completely? Well, it could be, but that means that everybody else would have to pay right. for it. Right. Uh, you know, you'd have to— uh, Or they find the money from somewhere else. Well, you know, if you're going to pay for a public benefit— uh, and you're going to make a public benefit free uh, to anybody who wants to avail themselves of it. You have to have 100% of the public paying for that public benefit. So um, that's the problem with making it completely free. Um, what did you think about um, the Biden sort of plan to eliminate, to help people with their college debt, that just eliminate it? 
that up gets, to a point, of yeah, course. Yeah. That gets to the point that I just made. If you have a public benefit that, say, uh, 25% of the people are going to take advantage of it, the other 75% are helping pay for that. And they're not taking advantage of it. And that's the flaw in waiving uh, student debt is everybody else is going to pay for it, including those who went to school and paid for their school at the same, many yeah. times the same rate as the people who took right. out debt to do it. And they don't get the benefit, right. but they get the privilege of helping to pay for it. Right. I agree with you. Crime and public safety. Prop 4757 reclassified crimes and increased the petty theft threshold to $950, which we've talked about, before being charged as a felony. And you constantly read today about these burglaries and smash and grab thefts where people just walk in and grab whatever they want and they leave. And it seems to be organized. What can we do about this and what can you as a senator do about this? There's uh, uh, talk in the, in the Senate on the Republican side of, uh, of uh, making, it Ill, uh, making serial thefts illegal. And some believe uh, that we can do that uh, even within the allowance of, of uh, Proposition 47. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't understand what serial theft so I'll get is. To that. Oh, okay. In other words, uh, currently uh, it is uh, – a, you can steal up to 950 bucks, and it's basically a misdemeanor. They don't call the police, right? And, and they're not uh, – the uh, DAs okay. are not yeah. uh, prosecuting that. Uh, but there is some thought that, that we could uh, pass a law that would say if people were convicted of committing this misdemeanor three or four times in a row – then it can oh, be prosecuted, okay. and okay. that's what serial okay. thefts mean. I'm not sure that the proposition would allow that. I think to reform that eventually, we'd probably have to go back to the voters and get them to reform the reform, because I don't think a lot of people realized what they were voting for. You know, the title of that proposition was the Safe Schools and Neighborhoods Act. Mm -hmm. Safe Schools and Neighborhood Act. Right. Um, I, I think, uh, now that was another legislation that I worked on, and I will again, and that is to transfer the responsibility for writing those titles and summary on propositions from the partisan attorney general to the impartial uh, legislative analyst. I worked on that four years while I was in the assembly, and of course the majority party won't let it get out of committee, but I, I will continue to work on that. But that was a mislabeled uh, proposition. And uh, people, were, I believe, were misled, and I think that it perhaps could be reformed. So let me get your opinion on something which I'm torn on, cash bail. So in the Supreme Court, um, um, rule to end cash bail. They say it's an important issue because this decision reduces pretrial detention in California, and that's really important because pretrial detention often has devastating consequences for someone's life. They could lose their job, they could lose their home, even the custody of their children. They say that uh, money bail dis uh, disproportionately affects black and brown communities. You have said that you would stand by the cash bail system, and you quote you quoted as saying, you maintain it as a key safety mechanism to keep dangerous criminals behind bars. What do you say to the advocacy groups that say what I just said? Uh, you lose your home, you lose your job. Let the judge decide. That's what judges are for. 
and and I would put my faith in the judge. But do you think it, that some people are, like if I was to get arrested and I had to post a thousand dollars, but someone who doesn't have, you know, who doesn't have a job, whose family doesn't have any money, they've done the exact same thing as me, but because they don't have the money, they sit in jail. I mean, is that fair? Not necessarily. The no. ju a judge can make a decision uh, to, to not have bail or have bail be at, a, at an amount that is affordable for that person, but significant enough that they will come back for trial. Uh, so again, I, to, to make a blanket law that affects everybody exactly the same without any ability for the decision makers within the system to decide what is applicable in a case-by-case -case basis uh, just generally doesn't work. So again, that's what judges are for. Okay. Um, we've heard a lot recently about defund the police, whatever that means. I have no idea what it means, defund the police. You said you strongly support fully funded law enforcement and making sure they have the resources to effectively do their job. What does that, explain that, what that means from your point of view? Well, defund the police did take on a uh, sort of a range of meetings uh, after the George Floyd right. incident. Uh, there were people who wanted to just gut police departments because they, But what does it mean? They, like it, it means don't have police, police? departments. It, wow, okay. it, with some people, it literally you really meant think they that. meant that? I think that, they, that some people yeah. literally meant that. I mean, it's, now, it's, to other people, it meant uh, to transfer some funding currently to police to social services for, so that social service people can right. uh, respond to calls right. that, that police might need expertise that they right. don't necessarily have. Which, by that, the way, in Rancho, they have that. That's, uh, a, that's a reasonable discussion to yeah, have. Yeah. Um, so um, rather than uh, get caught up in a phrase, defund the police, my position is public safety has to be fully funded. Right. That largely means police. Does it also mean that uh, maybe the police can be helped by some social services people in certain cases? Yes, but if you have, say, a, a, a family violence incident where you would say, well, that's not very well suited for a policeman, maybe a social worker should go in there, and the social worker goes in there and the, uh, uh, the, the offending spouse pulls out a gun and shoots them, because they're not trained in that right. part of the of the uh, of the yeah. enforcement, so um, that that's a reasonable thing to consider. But but public safety, police in particular, need to be fully funded to perform their job. And but fully funded does that mean more cops, more equipment? Not more? necessarily. No. Whatever's required. Okay. What, whatever so is required. So leave it up to the police department. Leave it up to the police yeah. department and the jurisdiction. So they say we need more men, give them more, not men, men and women. Well, they have to justify it. Yeah. Um, when I was on the Board of Supervisors, we, we handled the sheriff's budget, and uh, there were some requests that the sheriff at that time, Lou Blanis, who's a good friend, but I debated with him a lot because I didn't uh, be totally believe that he needed everything he was asking for. I believe in fully funding the police, but I also believe in in uh, a prudent uh, uh, budget setting. For? Is it equipment? Um, it's equipment. It's yeah. it's it's primarily positions. That's yeah. the that's right. the expensive part of it. Right. Is uh, cops on the street? Right. And and I I'd, I'd give heavy deference to what the head of the police department or sheriff's department says, uh, but they aren't necessarily totally right. But they do need to be funded to perform 
uh, their job. Right. So let's move on to environmental issues. Um, there's a lot of conversation. We touched on it, global warming and the environment. Every year, California experiences worse and worse fires. Um, California is a typically a dry state, which means that uh, water issues become more and more every year as, as every year passes. And then like the last couple of weeks, we have nothing but rain. And now all of a sudden we can't handle the rain. We can't handle the water runoff, the flooding. What are your views on that, on the environment? Should the state figure out a way of capturing rainfall, for instance, when we have it in the quantities that we've had it? Yes, we do. Um, first of all, uh, when we talk about water and water infrastructure, we have a larger infrastructure, what I call infrastructure deficit in this state and have for some time, some time and that includes uh, a transportation infrastructure as well as uh, water-based infrastructure. But speaking specifically about water, the nature of the water situation in California is we alternately have way too little or way too much. And when we have way too much, the, the river flows, particularly in Northern California, are very dangerous. They're, they're fundamentally different than what they experience uh, uh, to the east of us, like the Mississippi River can have flood problems too. But it's a huge river. It, it dwarfs the Sacramento right. um, River. And so the, uh, uh, we can get very sudden and unanticipated gushes of water uh, out of uh, the mountains in the American River, the uh, Yuba River, those uh, flood, flood, those uh, watersheds. And in this particular storm, it's been more a little south of that to consume this river, which is particularly uh, dicey because it has no detention uh, upstream. So it's almost a free flowing river and it doesn't take too much of a gush for it to threaten uh, the houses down below as it uh, certainly has. Um, I've been a long time advocate of the Auburn Dam, which appears to be a, a dead issue uh, now, uh, but that would have been significant water uh, uh, retention as well as additional uh, flood control on the American River. The site's reservoir is not a flood control reservoir, but it would provide significant storage to right. keep water when it's flowing, to use when it's not flowing. Uh, we absolutely do need to address those issues. And Governor Newsom, I think, just in the last two or three days, didn't he bring up the um, the water retention that they need to look into it? Uh, yeah, but uh, this is something that has been more or less authorized for a while through a state bond issue some time ago, and uh, we really we still haven't really done anything substantive with regard to the site's reservoir, and uh, we do need to address that. And lastly, the issues and your issues, infrastructure, I know it's important to you and I've read, uh, you know, on, on your website that your infrastructure sort of policies are to sort of help the business here in our region. Mm -hmm. um, roads, bridges, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think you're a big fan of this high speed rail thing no, not. That, they're, uh, <laughs> that they're proposing. So talk about infrastructure here in this region. What can we do? Well. The high-speed rail project is a troubling project because <coughs> it is behind schedule and uh, way over up. budget. Yeah. And uh, uh, the, the, my belief is that the fact of the matter is that that 
if that system ever is fully developed, it'll never operate as a true high-speed rail because right. if you have stops too close together, it can never get that fast. Right. I've, I've always believed that, that connecting the north and south state through rail is something that can make sense. And a modern heavy rail system would be much less expensive and I think operate at the same efficiency. But there's, there was a proposition that was passed, I think it was Proposition 10 back in the last decade, when I was in the legislature actually, that provided the initial authorization for the high-speed rail. And uh, if you read, this gets back to titles and summary statements on propositions, it can be very misleading. And that one was extremely misleading. I would uh, invite your readers to go to the uh, legislative analyst website and take a look at old propositions, the one that authorized high-speed rail about 10 years ago. Uh, oh, no, 10, 15 years ago. And if you read that title and summary statement, it will tell you, or at least imply, that you're going to get the entire high-speed rail system for $10 billion. It was authorizing the first $10 billion, but the title and summary had a very decided implication that the whole thing was going to cost $10 billion, which, of course, it's not. Um, and uh, it'll be well over $100 billion, and I think it's going to be a lousy return on investment. And it would, if we were to stop that project, it would free up lots of dollars. And it's from here to San Francisco? Is that what it is? Well, right now, it's just in the Central Valley from like Modesto to Bakersfield. That's what they're building. Now, eventually, the eventual plan is that it goes from San Francisco down the peninsula, down the valley to Los Angeles and San Diego, and then up the valley to Sacramento so that it would, it would serve Sacramento, San Francisco, the major cities, Fresno, Bakersfield, Los Angeles, And uh, what are we calling high speed? Japan high speed or England high speed? Because those are very different. Uh, you get on a train from London to Birmingham, for instance, which is equivalent from here to San Francisco, and it'll take you maybe 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. They call them the intercity 125. Mm -hmm. They go 125 miles an hour. Yeah. Or in Japan, of course, off they go. What are we talking here? What, what do they call high speed? Well, um, I imagine that if you ask the proponents, they'd say it's like Japan. But the challenge with high-speed rail is it can only go as fast as the distance of between course. stops will yeah. allow it. Yeah. And stops on a high-speed rail or on any rail uh, become a political issue. And, uh, you know, Modesto's going to want to stop. Oh, and okay. Uh, that makes Fresno is going to want to stop and Bakersfield. Right. So, uh, so you want to put a train from L.A. to San Francisco. In England, it would just go there. It wouldn't stop. Right. Off yeah. it goes. Yeah. But you're saying that each city, each little jurisdiction it's, on its way would it's want gonna, it to it's stop. It's going to stop. Okay. Unless they have one that's going to be a, an express train that doesn't stop anywhere other than the the, the very beginning and right the very the end. end. And I don't know that that's in the plan, and right. I okay. also think it would be very difficult. And I personally highly doubt that it's ever going to be fully be, uh, built out, And but I know for certain it uh, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. No. What about infrastructure generally, which which you talk about in, in now in this region? What's needed? Bridges, roads. What what is the important issues? The uh, uh, the connector between Elk Grove and Folsom El Dorado Hills is a very important addition to our infrastructure. Um, we have 
uh, in this area a spoke and hub uh, transportation system. That is, everything uh, goes in and out of the surrounding area, but there's no beltway, if you will, like they have in Washington, D.C. There's a couple of them. We have no uh, circular uh, transportation um, route. We abandoned that uh, when Jerry Brown became governor the first time, and there had begun a bunch of right-of-way uh, to produce essentially a beltway uh, that would uh, link uh, the spoken hub system uh, on the outside in uh, uh, the Carmichael area, Fair Oaks area, et cetera. That was abandoned in the, age, uh, in the age of uh, reduced expectations, which was Jerry Brown uh, number one. And uh, as a result, the Sacramento County Board of Supervisors uh, ended up abandoning all of those rights of way. And they're all developed now, and it's very difficult for us to have a circular route. And then, right. of course, we have uh, Folsom Lake, which is a rather imposing imp uh, uh, barrier in the way. But we can do s some of it to provide other means when there's heavy traffic. When I first moved back to Sacramento from uh, when I was with Arthur Anderson in the Bay Area, um, we moved out to Fair Oaks, and we still live in the same neighborhood. And I would commute on Highway 50, and the commute was uh, from east to west in the morning and west to east in the afternoon, and not much traffic on the other side of the streets uh, that time. Now we've had uh, booming residential areas in Elk Grove and uh, 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 employment areas uh, in uh, El Dorado Hills and Folsom, and so Highway 50 has become a heavily traveled thoroughfare freeway in both directions. Right. In fact, my observation is when I drive uh, in the morning east to west, it's heavier on the other side now. Uh, and so that uh, connector uh, to the east of Highway 50 <clears throat> between uh, Elk Grove and Folsom and El Dorado Hills would relieve that tremendously. That's a very important connector that we need. And that's going to be your mission to... Well, that's a local project. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on the board uh, when that project was uh, initially uh, identified to be done. I was on the uh, Joint Powers Authority Board, which still exists, and uh, they are hopefully going to be moving forward with uh, some uh, f additional funds from the, um, uh, from the federal government. So I won't necessarily be involved with that, but that is a very important piece of infrastructure for the Sacramento region. So if I can just move to just some general things, but politics in general. Um, what did you think about the whole speaker fiasco in Congress in the last couple of weeks where, you know, 15 votes, however many votes they had? What yeah. do you think about, it didn't make them, them being the Republicans look very good. Well, what, what is your opinion on that? There's various assessments from <clears throat> democracy can be a messy uh, uh, affair uh, to uh, that was an absurd display of democracy. I'll be somewhere in between that. Um, the fact of the matter is the fight over uh, Kevin McCarthy's speakership was not unlike the fight over Nancy Pelosi's speakership the time before, but somehow Pelosi did a better job of corralling her far-left folks 
the AOCs, the, the so-called right. squad, right. Uh, then Kevin was able to corral his far-right folks, um, uh, Matt Gates and, and some of the others. Uh, so it, it, when you have a very small majority, which the Democrats did then, the Republicans do now. Maybe even a, less if you, Santos leaves. Yeah, depending upon what happens with right. him. Uh, that's an interesting situation too. But, but uh, be that as it may, when you have a smaller ma uh, majority, it gives disproportionate power to the to a, a minority of your particular caucus, and uh, that's what we saw happen. They were demanding some changes. Some of those changes were were good. Um, some of them will make it very difficult for Kevin McCarthy to be an effective speaker. And is Kevin McCarthy the right guy? I think he is. Yeah. I know Kevin. I, you do? Uh, he, was the, uh, he was our leader oh, for, right. uh, for a couple right? of years when yeah. I was in the assembly, my yeah. first uh, couple of years. So I oh, worked so you closely know him quite well. I know him very well. Yeah. And uh, I've supported uh, his efforts uh, all along. And uh, I do think he's the right guy for yeah. the job. And, okay. and we'll see how it works. It's, he's going to have a tough time. Yeah. You read Joe Biden is the best president in the last however many years. What's your opinion on that? He is not the best president no. that in the last... Uh, Has he accomplished a lot, though? Uh, he's accomplished some things, some of them not so great, the so-called inflation-fighting uh, uh, legislation or whatever they call, which does nothing for inflation. In fact, it has helped to... Uh, make inflation more acute. I don't think that was a great accomplishment. The uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill was uh, uh, a decent accomplishment. I think uh, Mitch McConnell and some others had as much to do with that as, uh, as President Biden did. Um, I am not particularly impressed by Joe Biden. No. Then, then you read, you turn the page, and you read, Donald Trump is the best president this country's ever seen. <laughs> What is um, your opinion on Donald Trump? Uh, in the last two uh, presidencies that we've had, uh, neither one uh, uh, form into the greatest president ever in my mind. No. Should he run again? Do you think no. he will? No. No. You think he's done? I th I, well, I hope he is. Um, uh, I, I did vote for Donald Trump. Uh, at least partially because I couldn't accept the alternative. Right. Both times. Uh, but so the first uh, one was Clinton. Yes. And the second one was Biden. Was Biden. Yeah. And uh, I, I would not be. But able you wouldn't to, vote for him. I again. wouldn't vote for him again. Um, is he going to get indicted? I have no idea. I, I don't think it would be healthy for the country if he was. Um, but I don't know what they're going to find. Right. How does? And this is just a personal thing for me. But going back to McCarthy. After January 6th, you know, McCarthy is very outspoken towards Trump. And then three days later, or however long, he's there with Trump. How does that work in, in politics? Why do they do that? Do they think nobody notices? Or <laughs> is it what, what is it that causes someone to do that? And then continue to defend. Yeah. At least you don't defend it. No, I don't. Yeah. And I was a little disappointed at that. But but Kevin is uh, maneuvering on the uh, national political stage. And uh, Donald Trump has had a rock-solid base of support. He has. Uh, that uh, makes it very difficult for anybody that bucks Donald Trump. Now, I think that's weakening, weakening yeah. a little bit now. Um, but nonetheless, 
uh, he does have that rock-solid base of support that anybody that's going to maneuver on the national stage has to be at least mindful of it. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that Kevin was navigating. It's not easy. As I said, I was kind of disappointed in that, but uh, I understand his plight. Right. And lastly, what is the future of the Republican Party, the GOP? Do you think they're going to fix themselves? I mean, a lot of people say they're fractured, they're broken, they're, you know, they're, they're divided. Do you think they're going to get it back together? Both political parties are divided. <clears throat> we have a situation now, somewhat unique to now, where each party has a minority but very vocal uh, far left, far right wing uh, faction. And uh, maybe the Democrats are navigating that a little bit better, but it still exists. The, uh, well, they were pretty unanimous during the speaker thing. I mean, they, he, um, well, Jeffries. Well, yeah, but what were, were they going to vote for Kevin McCarthy? <laughs> I mean, of course they were unanimous. Yeah, yeah. They, they had picked their leader. And well, they, they could have picked one of their own. Um, you know, one of them could have stood up and said, well, whatever. Jeffries Just is, to show. Jeffries is a pretty progressive guy yeah. uh, himself, so it was probably easier for them to, right. for the more progressives to uh, to go along with that. But you know, through the this recent speaker fight, they, they were just watching it with yeah. Cheshire grins on right, their faces. Right, right. I think. <laughs> well, a lot of people were. Yeah. So as we get to a close here, what is a day in the life of a state senator? Tell oh. me a day. A, a, I know there's no typical day. But what time do you get up? What time do you go to the Senate? What, what do you do? It's fascinating to me what the, you do. Uh, the, the typical day varies uh, at different times of the year. Uh, right now and uh, until committee meetings start, which is late March, uh, we are in, ensconced in back-to-back -back meetings <clears throat> and uh, uh, meeting with people that, want to talk about their issues and particularly as a as a as a newcomer or a newcomer back uh there are a lot of people that, that uh, want to come, favorite, come yeah. see me yeah. initially and so uh well, what's that do you go to the senate to to the capitol oh yeah yeah yes i do and uh it's easier for me than it is for a lot of others because i because i live here but uh my day will start at uh, uh typically nine o'clock uh, uh monday wednesday friday i I tell my schedule I would like to have time to work out in the morning. I ride my bike on the American River Bike Trail 10 or 11 miles, and that's how I get my you do? my exercise. Yes, wow. I did Good I did, did this morning, 11, yeah. 11 miles this morning, 11.15, in yeah. fact. But uh, at any rate, I, I need to uh, keep in shape. Of course. Uh, and uh, But I, I'll get in 9 o'clock, and if there's a later meeting, I'll get in a little so bit ahead of the meeting. So you have an office? Yes, I have an office yeah. in what they call the swing space, the okay. – uh, the old annex, which is that uh, building that's tacked on to the yeah. east side yeah. of the Capitol, is closed up. And uh, we're in a, a new building that's about a block away. It's on O Street <clears throat> between 10th and 11. And I have an office in there. And there's hearing rooms in there, too, where we'll have committee meetings. Uh, and we walk to the Capitol for the floor session. Uh, Monday uh, afternoon, typically Monday afternoon, and Thursday morning are the floor sessions. Right now, they're about an hour long, 
at most because we're not doing anything because we don't have any legislation to work on. So Full session is when you're on the House floor. Correct. And you're talking to each other. Correct. Yeah. And uh, so that is the routine that we're experiencing for the next couple of months. Uh, legislation has to be in uh, by February 20th. And uh, Rules Committee gets all the legislation and they uh, they, they uh, dispatch that out to the various committees, and then committees start having their, their hearings beginning typically late March. So from that point on, the, uh, the d typical day is meetings and committee meetings, a lot more uh, committee meetings. And I'm on uh, six committees, vice chair of three of them, and in particular, the Budget Committee, which ends up being sort of a year-round uh, activity. An important committee. We have, yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. We have our first uh, budget hearing this week, in fact. Uh, and I have a Judiciary Committee meeting uh, this week also. But the, the heavy-up committee meetings are late um, or, or in March, April, May, and June. And then you've got to settle the budget by uh, the end of June, so that uh, becomes heavier budget issues. You go on recess in July, and then you come back to finish up the session in August. And that's, those are very busy session days on the floor. Uh, and then after that, you're, uh, you're in recess and uh, doing a lot of uh, uh, constituent activities. Okay. And what's next for Senator Nilo? Um, you get a stick stay as as uh do you have higher aspirations oh no i no. don't this I, is it um, for you i'm at the tail end of my right. career professionally right. and and otherwise um i have a the term limits that i am under <clears throat> allows me two terms in the senate right so i can serve uh, eight years right and uh, then you'll be and by that time i'll be about 80 years right. old uh joe biden's age and yeah i probably wouldn't want to push that right right well, Senator Nilo, thank you so much for being with us here today. It's, I know you're very busy, and I know you've got a lot better things to do than be here with us, but I certainly appreciate it. Um, we always end our podcast with a fun round of quick questions, <laughs> and, I'm hoping uh -oh. that, and I'm hoping that you'll, uh, you'll play along. Okay. So let's start with this one. What is one word that best describes you? Um. I think there's probably more than one word I'd like to use, right. but I'll settle on collaborative. Collaborative, which is a good uh, I think so. thing to have in your position. If you could be one person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? Alive or dead? Um, doesn't say, but yeah, let's go alive or dead. Winston Churchill. Yeah. And why? Uh, to be able to, well, I, I, I would love to meet the man and yeah. follow him around. To right. be him would right. be even better. Uh, he is, I think, one of the greatest uh, statesmen who has ever lived. Yeah. I, I just really admire uh, what he did and the way that he did it. Right. Um, what is your biggest pet peeve? Right now, it's the incivility and divisions that we have in this country. I'm troubled by that. Uh, the position, whether they're people on the right with me or on the, on the left uh, in, in opposition, 
the feeling that you're right and the other person is wrong, and maybe even not just wrong, but perhaps evil. Uh, that is a real uh, feeling that exists out there with too many people. Just to digress from this for a minute, what is the relationship between you and Democrats? Are you nice to each other? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. It's a very collegial yeah. uh, atmosphere. And if they don't agree with you, do they come and say, well, that was a load of baloney, no. Roger? No? No. I've no. never had anybody. Of course, I go out of my way to be friendly and uh, collaborative, and, and I truly believe that uh, I, in order to uh, prosecute the best debate, you have to be able to understand the other side's position at least as well as they do. And I can probably articulate the position of people that I don't agree with maybe as well as, as they do, or I would seek to. Um, and I think that that, uh, particip that uh, contributes you, to good you collaboration. Been, you haven't been there long, but you obviously know senators, I would imagine. Yeah, right? there are Is, several that I served with in the yeah. assembly. And not, we're not going to name names, but are there any that you don't like on either side that you think, oh, they're, they're a bit of a jerk? Or is it pretty much everybody is? Um, right now, there isn't any. No. When I was in the assembly, um, I wouldn't say that there were some members that I didn't, that I disliked. There were some that I didn't have a great deal of respect, respect for. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any hidden talents? <laughs> hidden talents? Uh, I do not. No? <laughs> I, I'm a WYSIWYG. Yeah. You know what a WYSIWYG is? I do not. What you see is what you get. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now that's, oh, that's a talent. Yeah. What you see <laughs> is what you get. What project are you working on today that you can't stop thinking about? <laughs> My uh, financial disclosure report. Yeah. I've, I've, the, today is a holiday, uh, Martin Luther King Day. And uh, this weekend, I had several personal projects I had to uh, complete. And today, I'm getting started on what's called the Form 700, right. Right. which for me is very complicated, and I have to have it done by March 1st. And you have to do that? Well, I really can't have anybody else no. do it because it has to do with my personal finances right, right. and uh, our business structure, which is rather complex. And so, and you have to do it by when? March 1st. Okay. Well, you have a month. I have time to do yeah. it. Yeah. And finally, what advice would you give a young person with aspirations to run for elected office, having done so as much as you have? Uh, establish themselves in their own life first. I didn't go into politics until I was 50 years old, and I'd had a pretty full business career, and I think that benefited my public participation. Actually, that's and a I very think, good point. Uh, I think people... Uh, would benefit by uh, establishing a career of their own successfully and then take a look at getting involved in the public sector. Okay. It's not right for everybody, but that's the advice I'd give. Well, that's about all we have time for this week. We've been speaking with State Senator Roger Nilo, representing the 6th District at the California State Capitol. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. As I said, I know you're busy. Well, we now know you are very busy with your disclosure forms <laughs> and for taking the time to be with us on the Rancho Cordova podcast, and I truly appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, and uh, appreciate talking to my constituents in Rancho Cordova. Thank you. <laughs>